Hello, welcome to Live from CapTimes Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lawrenson with the Capital Times. Over the course of the next week, we're bringing you recordings of interviews and conversations from our first ever Idea Fest at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Today, a conversation between Washington Post editor Marty Barron and Washington Post associate editor David Marinus. In their chat, Barron and Marinus reflect on the increasingly digital landscape of journalism, the groundbreaking stories that Barron has helped break, and what Donald Trump has meant for the press in America. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. Well, thank you all for coming here today. And Marty, thank you for being here. This is actually the first time I've been able to connect all of my life. You know, I grew up with the Capital Times and I grew old with the Washington Post. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're not there yet. You're not old. <laughs> I am. You know, in my 40 years at the Washington Post, I've been able to work for three phenomenal editors. Uh, the charismatic Ben Bradley, uh, the ink in his veins, Len Downey, and this fellow, Marty Barron. Um, you know, of course, Ben Bradley was paid, played by Jason Robards and Marty by Liev Schreiber. And now Ben is going to be played again by Tom Hanks. So I was trying to think of who's going to play Marty in the next one about, <laughs> about Trump. It has to be a guy with an L, so I figure Liam Neeson this time. Right? <laughs> that would be okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I grew up with a great editor, my father, Elliot Marinus, and so I know great editors when I see them, and Marty is, is, one of, is the best. Um, I remember a couple of days after the election uh, in last November, I was in the paper, I'd spent the last week traveling around with Hillary. <laughs> uh, what was thought to be a, a, such a victory lap that they broke out champagne at midnight on the plane back from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, but in any case, a few days later, I was in the post walking up the stairwell between the two news floors, and Marty was walking up or down. And I said, how are you going to handle this? And he said, we're going to just do our jobs. And really, you know, I think that that sort of represents um, the post culture and you as good as anything I'd ever heard. So um, I'm incredibly proud to, to say I'm affiliated with the Washington Post and to welcome Marty to Madison. <clears throat> So we're going to get to some, some of the more substantive stuff that I'm totally fascinated by. But I wanted to start with some newspaper questions. And I am a glass half full guy. I've been that my whole life. My father was like that. So I've always been really encouraged to hear you say that you're an optimist about the future of journalism. Why are you? Well, because I think there's always a need for journalism. I think, uh, you know, in communities like this one or at the national level or even at the international level, there's always a need for someone to tell us what's actually really happening, uh, particularly some, some institution to tell us uh, what the actual underlying facts are, uh, to bring those forward, to connect them, uh, and to inform communities 
and allow people to get the information that they need and deserve to know in order to uh, function as a democratic society. Uh, I think that's our job. I think that people continue to value that. Uh, and even though the business model is changing dramatically, has changed dramatically already, I think there's still an underlying need for institutions like ours to provide citizens the information that they need and they deserve to know. That's a little easier to say about the Washington Post and the New York Times than a local newspaper. You've worked at both to some degree. The Miami Herald is national but local. Um, what are the specific challenges that the local papers have that you don't? Right. Well, you know, the challenges are great at our level as well. Obviously, they've been pretty well documented. Uh, they've been, the New York Times has had its challenges. The Post has had its challenges. I think that both our institutions have, have started to overcome those challenges and find a, a business model that works for us. Uh, but we're working at the national and international level, uh, in addition to our own local communities, but fundamentally at the national level. Uh, the challenge is far greater for local for local newspapers because they are unable to get the, the national advertising. They have a hard time uh, getting people at the local level to buy subscriptions with digitally. Uh, they don't have the technology resources that we have. Uh, developers, for example, software developers don't necessarily want to work for the uh, local paper. They'd rather work for a tech company or something like that. Uh, they can more identify with the mission of the Washington Post and the New York Times than they can uh, with the with the mission of their own local newspaper. And they're more perhaps more animated by the mission uh, of uh, the Washington Post in terms of covering national government. So uh, local papers are facing, uh, have faced, and are facing uh, huge challenges that I think are far greater than ours. Um, I do think there's some, some models for success, and so uh, I am an optimist because I see some models for success. So, for example, in Texas, if you look at the Texas Tribune, which is an online-only uh, news organization, they do some terrific uh, co coverage and investigative work as well at the, at the state level and at the local level, and, uh, and they're able to make a living. Uh, they're able to pay their bills. They're able to continue growing. Uh, they have become very much at the center of their of their community, and uh, they have conferences like like this one, uh, which help them earn money. Uh, they are a great convener. Uh, they bring people together to have conversations about the issues that are important to their communities, and so they put themselves very much at the center of what's happening in the state of Texas. Um, that is one example that I think can uh, prove successful elsewhere. Uh, but other communities are going to have to come up with their own, their own models. When younger people ask me about the future of journalism, I always say that um, there are two fundamental things that have to be there and that shouldn't change. And the first is the human need to, to understand ourselves through story. And the second one is the need to go out and search for the truth, you know, no matter what the platform. We'll get to the truth later, but the platforms are phenomenally changing. And you know, you look at most of the crowds that I speak to, there's a lot of white hair. Uh, that's sort of people who come out to listen. And so I would guess that almost everybody in this room reads a physical newspaper. Um, and you describe the big move away from that. How much longer will real paper newspapers be around? And what is that big move? Where is it going? Well, I always get asked that question. Uh, it's a hard one to answer because uh, I think that it does, as our owner Jeff Bezos has said, it does take longer for these changes to take place than people imagine. So um, 
Sprint will probably be around for some time. It's hard to put a number on it. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, I'm not putting an actual number, but maybe it's 10, <laughs> 10 years, 15 years, something like that. But it's not going to be forever. Uh, it's pretty clear. I mean, we live in a digital society. Most people are getting their information off of a cell phone. Uh, most people are, are getting their information off of social media in some way. Uh, these are digital platforms. That is how pe people expect to be able to get information at any moment, uh, at any time, on any subject on their cell phone. Uh, that is where they're living right now, and on social media, particularly Facebook. And that's, uh, you know, that is, that is a challenge. And so, interestingly, you know, our owner, he was speaking at some conference in Italy, of all places, and he was uh, asked about this, and he pointed out that it's going to take a long time for newspapers to disappear, but ultimately, they will disappear. And uh, newspapers, as he put it, will be like a luxury item. Uh, and then he added, like a horse, like owning a horse. Um, and, and then he said, you'll walk into a house. What's the hitching post? Right. You'll walk into a house, and there will be a physical newspaper, and you'll go, wow, that's cool. Uh, that's really something. What is that exactly? Um, and, and well, I still have a typewriter under my desk. Uh, that is, and that is, that is where we're heading. And yeah. I think that we have, to, we have to acknowledge that, and we have to find ways of telling stories in a compelling fashion. Uh, on these new platforms that, that exist, because that's where people are. When I started at the Post, not only did we still write on typewriters, um, but used six-ply copy. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, I did the, that. And the I whole, that. you're that old? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am. And the whole day revolved around the page one meeting, it was called, at, you know, at three or four o'clock. And there's no, I mean, there still is a discussion about page one, but tell us about sort of the permanent campaign of, of journalism today. Yeah, I mean, we don't spend that much time on page one anymore, uh, frankly, in those meetings. Uh, maybe uh, 15 minutes at our, we have a four o'clock in the afternoon meeting, so we probably spend 15 minutes on, on what's on page one. There's a discussion beforehand among a group of people, but when it's presented to the entire senior editing staff, it's about 15 minutes worth of, uh, of my time um, with discussion that may follow later or things like that. Uh, but in that meeting, so we have a 9.30 meeting in the morning. Uh, typically, we're talking about uh, how, did we, uh, how did we do digitally? Uh, what was our digital performance the day before? Um, what stories did well? Why did they do well? What, what lessons do we have to learn in terms of making sure that our really good stories are disseminated widely uh, so that they're widely read? Um, what techniques were used? What did our competition do that perhaps we didn't do uh, that made them successful and us not? Uh, just basically, what are the fundamental lessons? Then we talk about uh, what we've already posted online during the day. That, that morning, well, we yeah, and we've actually start typically. We have an overnight crew. Uh, they put out something called Morning Mix, so they're all there all night long. Uh, they're working from at about uh, nine o'clock at night till five o'clock in the morning, uh, and uh, they're looking for stories that we may have missed that we can still work on. Uh, so, but we also talk about what we've posted. Our international stories are typically posted at three o'clock in the morning. If it's, uh, it's not a breaking news story, anything that's not a breaking news story, we will try to post at three o'clock in the morning. And then our national staff has already posted stories at six o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning. When people get up in the morning, they want to see what's new. Uh, they don't want to see a website that is uh, that looks exactly the way it did when they went to bed uh, the night before. 
Uh, and then we increase the number of stories over the, over the course of the day. It typically hits a peak at around uh, lunchtime when people are also reading pretty heavily. And then uh, drops off a bit and then it lifts a little bit uh, at night after, after dinner time. Uh, so we talk about what we're posting, what we plan to post the rest of the day, and then we talk about what we're likely to, what, what would be ca good candidates for page one of the newspaper. Uh, but that's the last thing that we talk about, not the first thing that we talk about. And the deadline just keeps rolling throughout the day. You know, there is no, no, we deadline. have a deadline right. for print, obviously, right. but we right. have no deadline for, for digital. I mean, we talk about being in a, a world that's 24-7, but it's not just 24-7, it's 24-7 and immediate. Uh, so... We put out alerts when there's breaking news. Uh, we actually measure ourselves against our competitors as to whether our alerts went out before other people's alerts. Um, and you measure those by the minute. Um, and we, I suppose we could measure them by the second if we wanted to, but the minute is enough uh, for me. And uh, it's important that we try to be first. Uh, and in trying to be first, we also have to be correct. We have to be right. And so it's a huge challenge. That is, but people expect that they will be able to know what happened every instance, in every instance. When Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, bought the paper individually, not as Amazon, right. um, it was pretty striking and shocking in some ways, acquisition. Um, you know, now that he's bought Whole Foods, the the uh, the line at the post is that fruit dies in darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Marty takes credit for democracy dies in darkness, but I don't think so. Uh, but uh, in any case, um, aside from, I'll get to some of the possible conflicts of that later, but what has this brilliant engineering concept done to the paper and how is that transforming not just the post, but but the whole profession. Well, I think he brought basically two things to us. Uh, one was financial capital and the other was intellectual capital. Uh, most people focus on the financial capital and that is you know, how much money he has and how he can invest. And he can certainly do that and he has done that, particularly with investments in our newsroom and investments in our, um, in our engineering team, our technology team. Uh, it's really important that we be at the leading edge of what's happening in technology. We're becoming much more of a technology business than we ever used to be. Uh, on, the, on the intellectual capital idea, I mean, I, he ha obviously came with a very sophisticated understanding of the Internet, uh, which I think has been really helpful to us. Uh, and, and, but beyond that, I think a very sophisticated understanding of consumer behavior. I mean, Amazon is fundamentally a consumer company. And... Uh, you know, you can buy, first it started selling books, but then it sells everything. And it, ha it has a, obviously a great, a great understanding of how consumers behave and what uh, incentives they respond to, uh, what, what purchasing patterns are like, things like that. So uh, he's brought that knowledge to us, particularly now as we try to think through how do we get more people to subscribe to the newspaper. Uh, so, to, you know, what kind of free offer should we offer somebody to get them to learn about the Washington Post? How long should that offer actually last? Um, what should the next offer be in terms of, let's say, a reduced price? When should you actually introduce a, uh, a um, full price? Uh, what, what kinds of metrics should we be using in our, in our newsroom uh, to measure our performance? How do we apply those metrics to, uh, to the work of a newsroom? when to apply them, when not to apply them, things like that. So um, he's been really helpful in that, in that regard and has certainly pushed us to 
recognize that we have to do things differently in an era of uh, when people are getting their information off of digital platforms. Marty and I sit here today as enemies of the people, <laughs> um, but not the opposition party. Um, both of those terms having been used by various members of the administration. I think it'd be great, Marty. I've, I've, I've read and heard you sort of go through your, your very powerful feelings about the uh, importance of the press in American society from James Madison through Brandeis to the Sullivan case, if you could sort of illuminate that for this audience. Sure, maybe. yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think that's why we exist. We, why did the founders put us into the Creative First Amendment? Uh, why did they mention uh, freedom of the press and freedom of speech? Uh, why did they mention the other rights that are enshrined there? So uh, freedom of uh, assembly and freedom to petition uh, the uh, government for redress of grievances. All of that, the whole purpose of that is to hold government accountable. And Madison talked about um, you know, the, the role of the press in examining uh, public characters and measures. Uh, that's what they wanted. So that is why we exist. So it's one thing to have that right. It's another thing to exercise that right. And I think the obligation falls to us to make sure that we are exercising that right every single day. Uh, we have a system of self-governance in this country. Um, and that does not mean that uh, the process ends on election day. Uh, that's just one moment. Uh, Self-governance is something that should take place all the time. Uh, and we're part of that. And that is telling people what their government is doing, who it's affecting, who's responsible, uh, who, will, uh, who will it cost, who will benefit, all of the kinds of things that journalists are supposed to do. Uh, and that's, you know, that's where we are. I don't think that that uh, makes us enemies of the people. I think that makes us friends of the people. And, um, and so that has been our mission with this administration. It was our mission with the prior administration and the administration before that. And it'll be our mission with the, whatever the subsequent administration is. And uh, we're very determined to uh, live up to that mission. Every day when uh, I walk into our newsroom, uh, the first thing I see are the principles of uh, the Post uh, that were written by the, the founder, Eugene Meyer. And um, he was, the, his family ended up owning the Post for 80 years. Um, and the first principle is that about our job to ascertain the truth as nearly as the truth may be ascertained. There's a recognition there <clears throat> that we have a core mission of trying to find the truth. Uh, but there's also a recognition that the truth can be hard to find. Uh, and that there's a process of striving there. Uh, and that's our job, is to continue to strive. Uh, we, we have to continue to work at it, recognizing that, um, that uh, it's elusive, and, um, and that is what we're trying to do every single day. Yeah, I think truth is the, the key word in, in everything that we do. It's, truth can be complicated, it can be uh, you know, a lot of different shades of gray, even though people want to make everything black and white. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with equivalency or false equivalency. And the post uh, motto that you recited, you know, as, as you heard earlier, the, the Cap Times one was let the people have the truth and the freedom to discuss it and all will go well. I'm not sure about that last third right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, per, you know, when you, as a historian, when you study history, you see all of, you know, the, the mess of American democracy throughout history. But this seems like a particularly 
slippery slope we're on now in terms of what is truth right. and what is fake news and all of that. And how do you deal with that every day and in a larger sense? Uh, well, look, I mean, I think we have an administration that's defined fake news as anything that doesn't comport with its own version of events. Uh, so, uh, so the only thing that's fake really here has been the president's account of what's fake news. Um, I mean, I think that we, um, look, we have a staff of over 700 people in our newsroom. Uh, they don't exist there to fabricate stories. We don't need 700 people to fabricate stories, that's for sure. Uh, we can do it a lot fewer staff, we, you know. Unfortunately, uh, I... So, but we have people such, you know, such as yourself who actually go out into the country, talk to a lot of people, gather as much information as possible, try to probe as much as possible, listen a lot, which is a big part of our job, is to be good listeners to what people are saying, uh, and then report back, make sense out of it, uh, and put it in a form that is a compelling, compelling story uh, for people, and that uh, reveals an underlying, an underlying truth. Uh, we work really hard at that, uh, and I think that, um, uh, you know, as I said, this is what we try to do every single day with every single journalist on our staff, whether it happens to be a reporter or a videographer or a photographer as well. Obviously, we have principles that apply to people who are dealing with images. Uh, our information graphics, all of them feel. Uh, animated by that mission of the, of the Washington Post, which is to ascertain, ascertain the truth. And, you know, there's been, a, there's been a, a process here with this administration, which has been to delegitimize uh, the press. Um, and they've tried to move even beyond that. It's a worrisome pr progression, I think, um, uh, that you see in a lot of other countries, and we've begun to see in this country. We haven't gone all the way through down the process, but... Uh, we've moved along it uh, in a fairly disturbing fashion. Though, you know, the first is condemnation. Uh, we've seen that. Then there's marginalization. We've certainly seen that. Then there's delegitimization and dehumanization, which we've seen a lot of by calling us garbage and scum and uh, uh, the worst form of uh, humanity. And then apparently that wasn't enough, so we call this the worst form of life. Um, <laughs> And then it became enemy. Then it became enemy. The people, enemy. The people came after that, and I'm waiting for what more creative, creative uh, juices will be applied to this process. Then there's like intimidation, and they certainly tried that. And then there's litigation, both civil and criminal. And the president. So we're kind of in that that spot where the president has uh, talked about. Um, uh, remember during his campaign, he talked actually about bringing lawsuits against the press, trying to, uh, to have them bear litigation costs, to pay uh, penalties of one sort or another, uh, to uh, do something, suspend the, or change the libel laws, and that's not clear what he was talking about, but, um, but, but change the libel laws in some fashion. And then there's lawsuits by people I would view as proxies for the administration. So. Um, Sarah Palin just re okay, recently sued right. the New York Times. We, you know, and other got it people, handed to her. Right. Yeah. So uh, other people have threatened. Then there's, you know, then it moves from there. It's typically, and you see this in other countries, incarceration. Uh, so the president, as has been reported when he was speaking to Comey, he was urging, he suggested that journalists need to be put in jail. Uh, and now we see uh, his encouragement, uh, that he's encouraged the attorney general sessions to do more leak investigations. Uh, uh, under the Espionage Act and other and, and other laws, uh, with the purpose of trying to maybe to put some journalists in jail, uh, hasn't happened yet, thankfully, but uh, doesn't mean that it couldn't happen.
Uh, and then, you know, what follows after that is just basically uh, expropriation of the press in one fashion or another. Mm -hmm. In other countries, we've seen this in Venezuela and Hungary and Turkey and uh, certainly uh, in, in other countries as well. And then ultimately, and, and then there's yeah. a, well, and you look at Venezuela and they're basically allies. When the press becomes weakened, what happens is that allies of the president come in and buy that news organization yeah. and fire the entire staff. And then they create a staff that's al that's aligned with the president. That hasn't happened here, but, close. Uh, but it could happen. Yeah. And you know that there are many people out there who have the resources, who are aligned with the president, who have the resources to do something like that. Uh, one can imagine that if the if the Washington Post had not been sold to Jeff Bezos, uh, who it might have been sold to if it had been put up for auction. Thankfully, uh, Don Graham, who was you know whose company was uh, selling us, did not put us up for auction. He went and tried to find someone he felt would be a good proprietor of the Washington Post. Uh, but you can only imagine who might have acquired us. You know, I spent most of my career working for the Graham family and. Um, Don Graham was an incredible uh, boss and human being, and he actually read every story in the paper every day. Um, but I think the noblest thing he did was realize that he couldn't save the paper anymore and tried to find a, an owner, you know, as controversial as Bezos might be in some other ways, an owner who could keep the traditions of the Post and enhance it in a time when newspapers were suffering. Um, so, but to get back to, to the you know, the slippery slope toward uh, populist authoritarianism or whatever you want to call what happened in Venezuela and some other places and how it could happen here. There's a fine line that I, that I know you have to walk between defending all of that and outright advocacy against it. There's some ways where you can speak out and some ways where you have to just keep going. And how do you, how do you find that line? Yeah, look, I mean, my, look, with respect to the election, I mean, my view is we have a democratic system here. I have total respect for it. Uh, people have the right to elect whoever they would like to be president or hold any other uh, elected office in the country. Um, that's what we have. In fact, that happens to be the democratic system that allows us to do our job, uh, to have a free press in this country. So uh, I have, you know, I have absolute respect for that. And I think that, you know, in this country, obviously, we should have vigorous debate about uh, policies, uh, about what's an appropriate policy for the country, and people should debate them as they always have throughout, Ameri throughout American history, sometimes in even more virulent fashion than we see today. As a matter of fact, if, you actually, if one actually does the research and looks at the language that's been used in American political debates, it's, it's been incredibly nasty. Um, and so people should debate those sorts of things. What I have a concern about um, is, um, is just an effort to try to shut down a free press, to intimidate a free press, to dehumanize us, to, uh, to uh, attack us in various ways, including possibly with litigation and, uh, and threatened incarceration. Uh, that I have a great concern about. And I don't want to see us go down that path. And I don't think the American public is uh, well served if we go down that path. That's not what the founders had in mind. Uh, when they enshrined uh, the right to, a, to free speech, free press, uh, in, the, in the First Amendment. The, um, when I came into the Washington Post, it was right after Watergate, when every young person in the country wanted to be an investigative reporter. Then it sort of uh, diminished for a long time and started to come back. I would 
say, to some degree, um, thanks to Spotlight. I remember when that movie came out, um, I, I was teaching at Vanderbilt, and many of my students came up to me and said, I never thought I wanted to be a journalist until I saw that movie. Um, so tell us about sort of first you going into this uh, alien foreign culture of Boston <laughs> <laughs> and breaking through to, to what was obvious, but people couldn't see it because they were too close to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I got there, I mean, it was interesting because I was coming out of Miami. I had been editor in the Miami Herald and a uh, great news town. Uh, yeah. News literally washes up on the shore there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I was a little nervous, actually, that there wasn't going to be enough news in Boston to keep me interested. Uh, so I really was. But it was, you know, a little more buttoned up than yeah. Miami is for sure. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, so I was reading the paper very closely as I was heading into the new job. I had three weeks between jobs. And uh, the day before I was supposed to start, uh, there was a column by columnist Eileen McNamara where she talked about this case of this priest, uh, one priest, John Gagan, who had been accused of abusing as many as 80 kids. And um, the allegation from the plaintiff's attorney was that uh, the cardinal himself was aware of that abuse and yet had continually... Uh, and yet the church had continually reassigned this priest from parish to parish without alerting anybody, without alerting the parish priest, without alerting, alerting the parishioners or anybody else in the community. Um, and the church said that this was, um, that these were uh, baseless charges, that these were irresponsible charges. Um, and so, and then she ended the column saying uh, that the truth may never be known uh, because the documents are under seal. Um, covered by a confidentiality order. And so when I came into my first meeting on my first day, as is portrayed in the movie, they went around the room, everybody talked about what they were doing for the day, and nobody mentioned this case. And I was a little surprised that they hadn't. And so I said, well, what about this column? And uh, you've got one side saying, what you're saying, the cardinal actually knew about this abuse, and yet this priest was reassigned from parish to parish. And the other side said, that's absolutely not true. Can't we get at the uh, truth of the matter rather than one side says one thing and one side says something else? And uh, somebody in the meeting said, well, you know, the documents are under seal. And I said, you know, I knew that. I read that actually in the column. Uh, and, um, and that, um, but, you know, I was coming from Florida, which has an expansive public records law. Um, a little less expansive than it used to be, but ex still pretty expansive by comparison with uh, many states. And I said, you know, our inclination would be to see if we can get the documents by going to court and getting, the, getting them unsealed. Uh, it's not, these aren't public records, so it's different, obviously. These are clearly private records of the church. Uh, but have we thought about going to court to try to get this unsealed? And the reaction was just complete silence in the, in the room, um, which was a little uncomfortable for a new editor. But, um, <laughs> and I, I said, well, why don't we just talk about this after the meeting? So, um, and we did. And uh, we agreed to contact our lawyer, whose name I did not know at the time, uh, because I had just arrived. And so, um, and then I remember telling Eileen, well, by the way, we're going to, we're talk, thinking about possible legal action. And she said, that's great, but we've never done a real investigation of this, da 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 da. And I said, really? They haven't done it? She, in her inimitable way, said, absolutely not. And I said, well, we should. And we launched that, uh, we launched that investigation. 
Uh, so we were on parallel tracks. One was the legal track, one was the journalistic repertorial track. And um, the lawyer came back a couple of weeks later after studying the law and the judge and all of that. And ultimately, so he laid it all out. And I said, well, what are the, what are the chances of prevailing? And in very lawyer-like fashion, he said, 50-50. <laughs> Do you hear that, and Brady? <laughs> so, like, those are like for a journalist, those are great odds, right? Uh, that's my view. It's like, listen, you don't often get odds as good as that. So, we decided to proceed, and uh, we needed both. We needed the journalistic effort, and we needed the and we needed the legal effort, and we prevailed in both uh, arenas. So that was, you know, so that was great. I mean, I as to. You know, they had, and the, there's a reference to this in the movie, the, the Boston Globe in the early 90s had done a big investigation of a priest by the name of Father Porter, um, and, um, and uh, it created a huge stir at the time. Um, and the, the Globe came under an immense amount of criticism as being anti-Catholic. Uh, the the, the uh, cardinal, um, cardinal law, um, um, <laughs> Inaptly named, but um, <laughs> Cardinal Law had said that you know called down the power of God on the editor of the Boston Globe. After which he broke his leg, um, and so um, I think there was a bit of skittishness, skittishness about that, and um, feeling like they had already done this story and tried to do the story. The difference here was that we had an opportunity to get the internal records of the church, and it made all the difference in the world, frankly. Uh, that. Uh, we were actually able to see their communication uh, among themselves about these cases and with their parishioners. Uh, we were able to see the promises they made the parishioners about how uh, particular priests who had been accused of abuse uh, would be taken out of ministry. And it turned out they weren't taken out of ministry. They were just shuttled off to another, another place. Uh, we were also able to see that, um, uh, as the movie portrays, that um, that certain priests were, they were put into uh, a uh, facility when they were not in ministry, it would be typically for a year, and they were put into some sort of facility as sick leave. And, well, their sick leave was meant they had been accused of abuse and they were being supposedly treated for this abuse. And then they would come out of that and they would be assigned to another parish. And, um, and they would abuse again. So, um, so clearly this is a case of uh, enormous wrong, potential, we saw potential wrongdoing on the part of the church, and I think when we as journalists see uh, the possibility of grave wrongdoing, by, particularly by a powerful institution, uh, we have an enormous obligation to pursue that and to tell the truth. Uh, a lot of people have asked me uh, over the, since the movie came out, um, well, weren't you concerned about it being such a powerful institution, and, and uh, weren't you concerned about that, uh, and why you know, uh, weren't you afraid of that? And, you know, my answer is that, um, what are we supposed to do, go after the weak institutions uh, for <laughs> wrongdoing? I don't quite understand that. I mean, we, we're, we're all ready to go after the weak institutions, but we're hesitant to go after the big, powerful institutions. We haven't, the big, powerful institutions can do far more damage than the weak institutions. And uh, we, as, an, as a journalistic institution, uh, with our strengths, uh, need to constantly uncover uh, the ultimate truth and expose any wrongdoing, especially by powerful individuals and powerful institutions. That answer explains why I think he's such a great editor. Um,
for as long as the 40 years I've been at the Post because it's in Washington and the interaction every day with the uh, administrations. Um, there are always every, every frequently um, stories that come in that raise that conflict between the public rights to know and national security. And you had to deal with that in a very important manner with when Bart Gelman came to you with the Snowden material. Tell them about how you resolved that decision. Right. Well, um, so Bart Gelman was a longtime reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, he had left the Post before I arrived, I guess a couple of years before, something like that, and was working on contract for Time Magazine. Um, but uh, through uh, the documentary uh, filmmaker, Laura Poitras, um, uh, Snowden uh, had, had, con had contacted him and uh, Green, Glenn Greenwald, at the, who was then at The Guardian. Um, and so um, uh, Bart was looking for a place to take this story. And for reasons that I would leave it to him to explain, he decided not to go to Time Magazine. Uh, he, 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 he was thinking that he should come to the Washington Post. And I guess he vetted me a little bit with the people who had, uh, who had had encounters with me. And uh, he decided to come. And so he brought this information. We, we didn't have the full breadth of it at that point, but we had some of it. And, um, and the question was, um, what do we do with this? This is the most, some of it, the most highly sensitive information in the American government. Uh, but what some it exposed, people might not know, just Right, well, this was, this was, right, so th this was information that exposed basically a, a pattern, a widespread pattern of surveillance by the American government that included in its, in its scope uh, American citizens. Um, and, and it was pretty pervasive uh, and quite intrusive. Um, and uh, it was being conducted by the National Security Agency. And so the question was, do we ignore that or do we publish something about that? And um, we decided that we should publish. And why, and, you know, why was that? Because I think people's privacy is a pretty important public policy matter. Uh, I think there's clearly a debate and should be a debate about how do you weigh uh, national security versus into people's individual privacy. But that's not a debate that had ever taken place. Nobody had allowed such a debate to take place. Nobody had ever said the American public did not know uh, that more and more uh, the National Security Agency uh, and other institutions had, uh, had, had basically taken it upon themselves to, to engage in this level of surveillance without the American public's participation in that discussion. And to me, that was just an incredibly important public policy issue that deserved a debate. Uh, now, the Obama administration subsequently, Obama himself subsequently acknowledged that that was an important public debate that should take place, uh, that it deserved to take place. Uh, I think he did that reluctantly. He did that under duress. Uh, but ultimately he, ultimately, he acknowledged that that was a debate that needed to take place. So, uh, but these were hypersensitive documents. And you know, we didn't publish everything that we, uh, that we knew. Uh, we just didn't. Um, and how much pressure on you was there to not publish any of it from the? Well, it was a fair amount, yeah. uh, quite a bit. You know, they didn't they didn't want us to publish any of it, uh, frankly. Uh, but you know what? It was going to be published anyway because of Snowden. Uh, what Snowden was doing is he was giving it to two media institutions and saying, "You decide what you think should be published." Uh, what he could have done 
uh, is gone to WikiLeaks and say, just publish it all. Every last word of it. Here's everything I have. Put it all up there and publish it. In the current environment, whether we decide to publish or not doesn't mean it's going to be published or not. Uh, he, people can publish themselves. Um, just go on the web and put it all up there. And he was fully capable of doing that and could have done that through WikiLeaks, obviously, very quickly and very easily. Um, and so you know, our job was to decide which of these things are a matter of um, deserve to be aired publicly and which ones don't. So uh, you know, we didn't disclose, uh, we didn't disclose the names of uh, American agents around the world. We didn't disclose uh, certain details uh, that could have led to people being assassinated or basically destroying those methods, of, those intelligence methods. Every time we publish a story, one of those stories, we have an in-depth conversation with the intelligence agencies about what's in the story. There are no surprises for them. Uh, we tell them what's going to be there. And they have an opportunity to uh, talk to us and make their case as to whether something should not be included. Um, and there were details at various times that we decided to withhold. It never changed the thrust of the story. We never withheld a story as a result of that. Uh, but we were willing to listen to them. And I think that um, while they, they wish we hadn't published anything, if you talk to people in the intelligence agencies, and I've talked to some of them, they feel that we, we handled it in a responsible manner. They would have preferred nothing up here, of course, uh, but they felt that we were responsible. We gave them an opportunity to uh, express their views. Uh, we didn't surprise them. Uh, and, um, and so I think we performed a, I think we, I, it's a highly sensitive and difficult decision, but I think we went about it in a responsible way. A question came to my mind that I hadn't thought of before, and it might seem naive, but when a source comes to the newspaper and wants protection, of course, we protect them completely in terms of not naming sources and going to jail if we have to, to, to not name them. In this case, it was someone who was public. It was public. It became public. It became public, yeah. But at the point it became public, did, did the Post feel any obligation towards him in terms of what the government would do to him? I mean, I'm not sure there's anything we could have done. I mean, it really, really never came up. There was nothing we could have done for him. I mean, we're not his ally. Right. Uh, we're not his uh, public relations person. Right. Uh, we're not, but that's true of any source. Absolutely. He's our, he's our source. Yeah. He decided that we were a good vehicle for, for getting this information out. Right. He decided that he would rely on our judgment as to what should be published. Um, and we certainly wanted to maintain sort of a civil relationship with him. Uh, we weren't going to, I mean, initially when this, uh, when the first story came out, he was in Hong Kong. Uh, we didn't feel an obligation to go tell people where he was. I would hope that the American government would have sufficient capacity to find him at that point. Um, uh, he, he did use a passport, by the way, um, and uh, and and then he, but he immediately left Hong Kong and um, and then ended up through a circuitous route in Moscow. Moscow. I mean, at that point, I don't know what we're supposed to do for him. I don't know that we have obligations other than to treat him respectfully and uh, professionally uh, in the way that we would treat anyone else. Um, and, uh, but we also are not going to be an agent of the American government uh, to, to help the American government you know, um, do whatever it is they want. Over the last eight months, I've been off working on a book and 
it seemed like every few days for eight months, I'd get an email sometime around 4.30 in the afternoon from one of my uh, colleagues at the Post saying, it's scoop o'clock. Scoop o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, the third investigative. It's a little early, actually. It was yeah, a little well, later than that. But no, but they, it hadn't been. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I worked with. Oh, 4.30 people. here, Madison time. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So anyway, it's been in a phenomenal uh, run of investigative reporting by your newspaper with a lot of separate teams working at different angles of it. Um, and it's, I know because these people talk to me how invigorating it is that they can't even sleep at night. They're so excited about what the next day is like. And so sort of describe the atmosphere of, of this uh, run of investigative reporting. Uh, you know, it's been great. I mean, it's like, it's been very, I mean, people in the staff are highly motivated. Um, you know, they, um, it's a highly competitive atmosphere, particularly between us and the New York Times, yeah. uh, which I think is a healthy competition. It's been described as a war. I don't think I see it as a war. I think it's between us. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a healthy competition uh, between us. I think the public is well served by having that kind of competition. Uh, people feel hugely animated by it. Um, they, um, you know, there's been an environment where uh, there are people within the American government who are concerned about things that are happening uh, and they have information that they would like to see uh, made public and uh, we're a vehicle for that. Um, it's not just a matter of leaks, but I mean, people who have been, you know, people who've been work working on these beats for in some instances decades, uh, you know, they know a lot of people, they've earned a lot of people's trust. They know they understand the subject matter uh, well uh, they know that they'll exercise good judgment. Um, they know that they'll protect the confidentiality of their sources. So uh, it's not a matter of just somebody sending a leak. You know, uh, it's not that. It's not at all that simple. Um, so um, on the other hand, you know, we've come under it as I've referred to already. We've come under severe attack from the administration. The, the White House is uh, hyper concerned about leaks, not only of classified information, but unclassified information as well. Uh, it's determined to find out who the leakers are, uh, determined, uh, you know, the, the Attorney General held a press conference to say that they have more ongoing leak investigations today than in the entirety of the uh, Obama administration. Uh, which was they, quite a few. Which had a lot yeah. too. They, they were pretty aggressive on that front as well. Um, it's clear that they would, um, you know, they, they want to find out who our sources are. Uh, so, and uh, so that's an act of intimidation, clearly, and we have to try to continue to produce stories in an environment that is uh, where the administration is not only trying to intimidate us, but it's trying to intimidate, it's trying to intimidate our sources. Uh, Has it come close to the point of them threatening to uh, jail any reporters to get those sources? Not yet, uh, but they have. You know, there were certain. During the Obama administration, was which one, was yeah. aggressive, yeah. there were certain guidelines. Uh, right, there was one, so there was one case during the Obama administration that involved James Risen uh, of the New York Times. Um, there was, it was a leak investigation. They wanted him to testify. He wouldn't testify. Um, they, they went to court to try to force him to testify, uh, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and he would have had to testify, and then the uh, Obama administration's Justice Department basically decided not to force him in the end. Uh, but that and, probably wouldn't happen this time. Probably not. 
so, um, uh, you know, so in that case, if we had that situation today, probably, you know, a reporter like Jim would end up in jail, probably not refusing to testify. Uh, so, but we're not there yet. Uh, mm -hmm. They haven't. We haven't gotten to that that stage yet. It's entirely possible that we will get to that stage. Uh, this administration, in the previous administration, uh, there were certain guidelines about um, subpoenaing uh, uh, phone records and things like that of reporters. Uh, there would be notification to uh, journalistic institutions that they were engaged in the process mm -hmm. of subpoenaing those records. Uh, this administration has not committed to abiding by those guidelines, uh, the guidelines of the prior administration. Um, so, you know, we'll have to wait and see how, uh, what happens here. Um, uh, we've got uh, well, three and a half more years of this uh, first, uh, first term, so uh, it's a long time. When I was in the heat of my reporting days, I loved nothing more than beating the hell out of the New York Times. Yeah. And I know that that's still the way that it feeds your energy. But today, I see everybody retweeting each other's stories. You know, it, it, that's a different culture in a way, but it, it's, a, it's a different synergy. But um, I think it improves both papers to have that competition in a way that... Yeah, and I think it enhances our credibility to acknowledge that we don't break every story, and if there's an important story that you should be aware of that's on our beat, that we'll let you, we'll let you know about it, and that's why I think people are tweeting them. I also think that as uh, journalistic institutions, uh, we, we should support each other in the mission that we perform, um, and uh, we should be civil with each other. Um, I, at the National Book Awards, the, the festival that was held about uh, a week or two ago, uh, I actually introduced Tom Friedman from the New York Times. So, and uh, I started out by saying, as you might imagine, I'm not in the practice of introducing journalists for the New York Times. Um, uh, but I think it was the right thing to do, and uh, he's terrific, and uh, I think that we should celebrate good journalism wherever it comes from. The, uh, the Bezos question that I know you have an answer for, but I think it, it demands to be asked and articulated is that he is a figure far beyond his ownership of the Washington Post. And a major, um, I mean, what he has done is changed the American economy. It's changed so many different aspects of life. And what you, you've taken on fearlessly, the clergy, uh, the government, could you take on your own bosses? Right, well, you know, that's, it's a good question. Um, you know, uh, if you look at the history of American newspapers, they've often been owned by very wealthy, uh, very wealthy people in the past. It's only over the last, over a period of maybe 30, 40 years where they started to be owned by public companies and things like that. Uh, but prior to that, they were owned by very wealthy, very wealthy people who had actually, in those instances, many of them had their own strong agenda. Uh, the great thing is for Jeff is that he doesn't, he gives us our, completely our journalistic independence. And uh, he's done that notwithstanding the attacks that he's endured uh, from the president uh, who has attacked him personally. Well, that strengthened uh, his resolve, wouldn't you say? I don't know, but I mean, I, I know that he remained absolutely committed to our yeah. mission. He has said on many occasions uh, that, you know, someone, and during the campaign, that someone who, uh, who aspires to hold the highest position in the most powerful country on earth deserves to be scrutinized, can expect to be criticized, uh, and uh, that we have, that we in our, in, uh, at the Washington Post, we have a job to perform, and that's 
central to our central to our mission. So, uh, but he also said when he when he after he he hadn't closed the deal to acquire us, but he had his first town hall, and uh, as you can imagine, there were many hundreds of people, 600, 700 people who showed up. It was an overflow crowd. Uh, and he was asked that question. And he said that, um, you know, you should, um, you should cover me like you would cover any other uh, executive. And you should cover Amazon the way you would cover any other company. Uh, and if you ask and, me a question, I won't answer it. <laughs> and he, right, he was asked, were you there? Uh, he said, he was also asked, he was also asked, they said, you know, you're famous, Amazon is famous whenever a journalist calls you for saying no comment. And now you're buying a, now you're buying a newspaper. Uh, how do you reconcile those two things? And his basic answer was, uh, if I could boil it down, was, uh, well, you have your job to do, and Amazon has its job to do, and each institution is going to do what they think are in their best interests. And you know, you keep asking the questions. And and we've run a, a number of stories actually that have been pretty tough on on Amazon. Obviously, it's it's fight yeah. with Hachette, the publishing house. Uh, most recently, we had a very big piece in the business section, uh, raising the question about monopoly power. Um, and uh, so we have had. We've had quite a few pieces that are pretty tough on Amazon. I haven't heard a word from him about it. Uh, I don't expect to hear a word from him about it. Um, and uh, he has given us our independence. And I think he fully expects for, an, for, a, for a company as big and as uh, influential, as powerful as Amazon, that we're going to have to cover it. And uh, we certainly can't embarrass ourselves by not doing our jobs as journalists. I don't think he wants us to embarrass ourselves. Uh, they'll have to come up with their own answers. You know, I don't work for Amazon, so. Yes. And I signed the author's petition uh, criticizing Bezos and Amazon for their manipulation of, of the book sales. And, and I didn't get fired. Not that it matters, but yeah. <laughs> it does matter. It does matter. It's fine. Um, it's like we're just about at the end here. I wanted, this is my favorite Marty Baron quote of all. And I wanted you to end with this. Journalistic independence is not a hostile act, it's a moral act. Thank you very much. <laughs>